Good morning. Thank you so much for, for being here. We're excited to kind of continue this, uh, this conversation, this, this uh, two-week series that I'm doing on, on the prodigal son. And uh, if you weren't here last week, where I left off um, is just with the nature of a loving father who spends himself. And how, when we look at this passage that we just read, what you're seeing is you're seeing a father who has such a supreme focus in his life. He's so committed, he's so uh, connected to his children, and he has such a huge desire to see them become all that God uh, would, would want them to become, all that the Father would want them to become. And as we look at that, we wanna start to look at our lives and ask ourselves if our hearts match the Father, not just in in our own lives, but do we want what the Father wants? Do we want what the Father wants for, for the people we love? Do we want um, what the Father wants in the world? And um, ironically, I find it just absolutely fascinating that if you weren't here last week, I opened up talking about the, the challenge and uh, the verbiage and the change that's happened around the word evangelical and how it's kind of become this bad word. It has this idea of, of kind of um, being pushy and being dogmatic and being kind of pro-nationalism. And I, I talked about how that's really not what evangelicalism is and, and what it's all about. If you just take the purity of the word, the word it has to do with the good news. It has to do with the gospel message. And so what's happened is over the past 70 years, there's been some traits and some things that have happened in this country that have created this kind of caricature of what it looks like to be an evangelical. And I'm afraid to a certain degree, we saw exactly what it's not supposed to be this week when we see people that are um, being violent um, in the name of Jesus. Um, that alone, um, you know, is just it could not be more opposite of, of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. So when you, when you talk about being a Christian, all right, this is it's so difficult. When we start to think about our politics, we start to think, think about who we follow, what we adhere to, our ideologies, uh, what we think about the world. When we adhere to being a Christian, what we're saying is that we're a follower of Christ. And that just doesn't mean that where he goes, we go. It means that we try to do what, what he would do, that we kind of emulate him in our decisions as we take our paths. We, we, we look at what his life is and how he lived, and we say, this is the direction that I wanna go. I wanna do the same things. And what you find is that Jesus is much more interested in the truth in the truth, and people knowing him, and following him, and living the way that God designed humans to live. That is the ultimate reality for the follower of Christ, to know the truth, to have it set you free, to allow who God is to permeate, to lead, to guide your life. And what you find is that on this planet, and even when Jesus was present on this, this earth, that what people believe is most important and what's mo most potent is power, power. The ability to manipulate, the ability to lead, the ability to gather, the, the ability to, to have authority. And what Jesus says is that the ultimate truth is the ultimate power, not just having the ability to manipulate people. When Jesus stands before Pilate, he is basically having a conversation with Pilate about power, who has the power? Are you a king, he says. He says, I'm, I'm, 
I came for the truth. I came to be a, a, a declaration of the truth. I came because the truth is the ultimate reality. It's who God is. God is in charge. God is, is love. God is here. He loves us. And Pilate has this human power. And Jesus even says you wouldn't have it if, if it wasn't given to you. So obviously the person that has all the power has the ability to give some power. So if I have the ability to give power, I have more power than the person I'm giving it to. And that is the truth. And so what you see to this, this week, which is just so bizarre, is that we should be seeking truth, not power. We should be seeking the truth. And the truth is to live a life that's permeated and overwhelmed by the presence and the power of Jesus. And you guys, it's not violent. It's not. Jesus was brought to the very edge of every temptation, of power, of manipulation, and his response was never with violence. Some people like to argue that him turning over the tables is some display of violence. It's not. It's not a display of violence. It was a message he was sending to say, this is what's supposed to happen here. People are supposed to be praying and worshiping here in this temple, and instead they're using it to gain money. So it'd be like him coming into to this church and if our main thing was to get your money and to sell things instead of you knowing Jesus, he'd come in and say, don't, this isn't me. This isn't me. That's not me and that's not me. Jesus is the epitome of peace. He is a response of kindness all the time. And so when, if you're struggling with the world, if you're struggling with what it means, what it looks like, it's not hard actually to go, don't worry about what people call themselves, don't worry about what, people, what banner people put over their heads, look at how they act. Christians are peace-filled, joy-filled, joy-filled lovers of people, and they, they live their lives that way. That's what it looks like. And so just because you call yourself a Christian, it doesn't mean you are when you're not actually following Jesus, and that is where this church is. And and so what, what we want to look at and why this is so great that we're talking about this now is, honestly, I, I felt like God like kind of preempted or did something with the fact that I moved in this direction this week because what a refreshing, wonderful time to look at what it really means to be an evangelical or to, we're not going to kind of recoin the, the re, you know, use the, the word, but to, to be actual, genuine followers of Jesus and to actually give the gospel and share the gospel and live the gospel. And the story of the prodigal son is a story that says this is what it looks like to live out the gospel in a world that needs it, in a world that needs it. And so this parable that you just read is about God telling us what is worth celebrating. What is worth celebrating? What should we spend our lives celebrating? What should we party for? What should get us excited? What should make us wanna, you know, I'm gonna say it, cut a rug. I never have said that word in my life, or that phrase, cut a rug. But we, it's like it's something that my parents' parents have said, I don't know, cut a rug, you could really cut a rug. Do the jitterbug, no, sorry. But what is, what is, what is actually worth celebrating? The context of this passage is Jesus sitting down with the sinners, the people that in the, the Jewish society were deemed the ones that had moved away from the pathway and the fellowship of God, of Yahweh. 
people that were, you know, they represented the Roman government. They were tax collectors. People who, uh, you know, maybe were liars or cheaters. Or just people who didn't observe the, the law. And Jesus was sitting with them and having a meal with them. He was with them. He was next to them. And he has already told everybody who he is, what he's about, and he's there for the kingdom of God. And what's going on in this passage is the Pharisees, the kind of the leaders of Jewish um, ritual and teaching and, and temple worship, they're the ones who actually believe that um, the temple and that the, the place where they would sacrifice animals, that that was where God's heart was. They believed that God's heart was in the temple, following and doing all the rules of the law, just obeying the religious order, going through those motions. And what you have is you have Jesus who says, I'm God, and he is over with sinners. He's not in the temple. He's at someone's house. And the people that are in the house are not followers of that law. They're not observers of it. They're people who actually do the things that are against the law. And so the leaders of, of, of that kind of religious world that Jesus is in are going, Jesus says he's God, and he's sitting with the people who aren't in the place of God. They're not doing what God would have them do. They're not in the temple. And so Jesus is sitting with them to show them what God wants to celebrate, where God's heart is, that it's actually with people. It's not just with going through the motions. It's not just with religious activity. It's with human beings. So they're having a discussion. The debate is actually what's going on when they start to, they start to bicker at Jesus for sitting with these sinners, these lost people. So it's a debate, really, if you think about it, about who can impress God more. Who can impress God? You say you're God, or you're, you say you're God's son, and you, you think that by sitting with them that God is more pleased with you. Like that's your aroma, your sacrifice that you're offering up to God, sitting with people. And then they're going, we believe that it's doing all the rituals and sacrificing the animals and, and observing all those sundry laws, all the laws. We believe it's that. So the Pharisees are going, you, Jesus, the way you're living your life, it doesn't impress God. That's not what God is happy about. What God is happy about is the temple. He's happy about the temple over here. So you have this conversation about who makes God happier or satisfies him more. The problem is they were having the debate about what God makes, what, what makes God happier with God. Isn't that funny? They were having the debate. They thought that they knew God better than God. So Jesus is the picture of God. He is the, he is the manifestation of God. If you want to know about God, you don't just have to come up with concepts, ideas, and definitions. You, you look at Jesus. So if you're wondering what Jesus cares about or what God cares about, you look at the person of Jesus. So if you ever argue with Jesus, you're arguing with God. I know, I, I know that sounds simple, but you're arguing with God. And what Jesus is saying is, I care about people and sitting with people. My heart is not just going through the motions of religion, not just offering something up to God as a sacrifice. My heart is with human beings, my creation. That's my heart. 
You see, the punchline of this parable is about the older brother. The punchline. The punchline of this entire parable. Most people read this parable, and what you do is you go through it, and you, you look at the son who went and sold everything off, and it's a massive story. It, what the son does to the father, the, the, the first son, is he disgraces him at such an extraordinary level that it's hard to keep reading. Because basically, what he does when he asks for his inheritance is he basically is communicating to his father that I want you to act now as if you were dead because you wouldn't get your inheritance until your father is dead. So the son is going to his father and saying, you're dead to me. So what you have is worth more to me than who you are. Now, if you have any children, you know that that would absolutely destroy your heart. And you experience it. What you have for me is better than you. The one who can provide it. The one who gives it to me. What you have for me is better than you. It's a, it is a picture of completely missing the mark in terms of knowing who God is and having your priorities straight. So he basically treats his father as if he is dead. He takes all of his money and he thinks, I'm gonna go live my life better. So this land, he basically takes land, he splits it in half, him and his older son keep part of it, they take the other part, he sells it off and gives it to his son who basically says, you're better off dead than alive to me. He takes all of the, the sale money from the land and all the resources, any inheritance that he would have, he takes it and he flushes it away. And the whole time what he's thinking is, I can do this better than my father. So the story is, is, is magnificent. He disgraces his father. He treats him like garbage. He takes everything that the father, he's like, you don't want me, you take my stuff. He takes his stuff, he flushes that down the toilet. Which you could imagine if that was you and you were told your stuff is more important to me than you, dad, and then I'm gonna go away and flush it down the toilet. You would imagine that a father at that point would take that moment to say, see, I told you so, or hey, you, you, you're done. You know, you, you, took, you took my heart by disgracing me, you took my stuff, and you're out. But the opposite is true. Even though he's fully disgraced, even though his heart is broken, even though half of the father's actual property has been flushed away, his heart is still with his son. So when his son gets to the point of literally hitting rock, hitting rock bottom and, and eating where animals eat, and he has this moment, this epiphany, where he goes, everything I had that was good was with my father. I threw away everything he gave me, and he still has more. I'm gonna see if I can go back to him after basically disgracing him to the utmost. And the story is amazing because what the author shows you is that the father not only is willing to kind of accept the son back, which right, wouldn't we like, you know, okay, all right, maybe that'd be good. Come back, you can have, you can sleep in the basement, whatever, right? Like we'll, we'll, we'll work into it, right? We'll kind of work into it. We'll start you on a plan. We'll get you through a, a program. We'll get you learning to save. We'll get you to kind of get your responsibilities back. You know, you might think that you have to kind of deconstruct the son's philosophy about life and then help him fix it back together. And, you know, you have to kind of retrain him because, man, he messed it up. The father does the opposite. He sees the son. He's waiting for him to come back. The implications are that maybe he heard that his son was in trouble, so his heart leaps with expectation and joy, looking in the distance every 
morning for his son's potential return. One day, while he's having his coffee, he sees his son far off and he runs to him and he embraces him and his son throws himself at his feet. I'm sorry, I messed it up, I screwed everything up. I don't deserve anything. Put me out in the back, put me in the shed. Just let me be around. Let me live on the margins. Let me just have something. And the father doesn't even respond to his request. He just starts to make orders. Get the best robe, get the best food. My son is home, and that's where my heart is. It's magnificent. If you're wondering what it looks like to have the heart of God, it is planted right here in this path. This is the heart of God. You might ask yourself, how much do I have to forgive? You might ask yourself, how far do they go? How much disgrace do I have to put up with God? How much? When do I forgive? When do I embrace? When do I return love? When, how far, how much, how wide is, is the love I'm supposed to give to those who hate me, who, who spit on me, who disgrace me? God, how much? The answer's right here. It's never ending. It's the overwhelming, reckless love of God. And the reckless is not that he's reckless, it's that he would wreck himself for us. And you might think, that's enough, right? What a parable. That's not even the reason Jesus tells the story. The reason is the next part. They start to celebrate. And the whole context of the passage, remember, is the Pharisees bickering at Jesus for celebrating with the sinners. So now we finally, after the whole story of the sinner, and we've defined the sinner and we've defined the heart of God. Now we're to the actual father celebrating with the sinner. Now we're to the picture that Jesus, the whole reason he told the parable is because of what's happening now. Now they're sitting there. The son is off working. He hears the celebration. His servant comes out. They have this conversation. Your brother's here. He starts to get angry. He starts to get mad. What in the world? They're celebrating him? That's the Pharisee. Why are they celebrating him? I'm the one out here in the field. I'm the one that's doing what my father said. I'm the one that didn't do what he did. I didn't disgrace him. Imagine this. Imagine the Pharisees listening to this. They're all sitting there going, Jesus, we're in the temple. We do everything right. We do the sacrifices. We live the life. We're doing everything that we're supposed to do. And your heart is over here with these people who disgrace you, who've turned their back on you, who aren't living for you, and you're sitting with them. And you're not just sitting with them. You're laughing with them. You're having a meal with them. You're celebrating them. And Jesus says, yes, you need to see, brother, that this is where my heart is. And then the conversation just multiplies into depth of who God is and what he cares about. It just multiplies. He comes to the father, he says, your son, and the father says back to him, it's your brother. Your brother. He reminds him, this is not just my son. He wants us all to know that who God cares about is not just one of God's other children. Who is it? It's my brother. It's your brother. It's your sister. 
And my heart is with my kids. And that's what God says, or the father says to the older brother. He says, I've been with you the whole time. I care about you. I care about your heart. But you gotta understand, you're here. You're not lost. Your brother was lost. He was basically dead. And he's come back to life. Now, you and I have been together. Now we have one that's returned. Let's not just go through the motions and act like we don't care about that. Let's jumpstart the heart of God and start to celebrate what God cares about. Any one of his children who returned to the Father. That's God's heart. What the older brother doesn't understand and what the Pharisees didn't understand as they thought that they appeased God with all of their ritualistic motions, which have extreme depth and meaning in and of themselves, but they're just not all-encompassing in terms of what it means to follow God. What they don't understand is that the older brother was disrespectful. He didn't have the heart. He didn't have appreciation for his. You you look at the passage, you think the younger brother, he's the one that was the most disrespectful, but then you look at the older brother, he didn't appreciate his father while, he were, while they were there. He went and disgraced his father and yelled with him and argued with him. You know, the implication is, is that the same way that the father ran out for the younger son, he runs out to the older son and pleads with them. The picture is, these Pharisees are just as lost. The people that think they got it all together, the people that go through the motions, the people that know all the theology and they say all the right things and they go to church all the time and they, whatever, your heart, even if you look like it on the outside, could be stone cold and far from God on the inside. So the father runs to the older brother the same way he runs to the lost son that's coming home. And it's a picture of Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he wants them to know. Don't you understand that new life is greater than perfect religious posturing? New life is essential to celebrate. But God, listen closely, God also wants the righteous saved. He wants Christians saved. He wants those of us that have stopped celebrating to be saved from their self-centered faith. So the challenge is to you and me who aren't celebrating the lost being found. If your heart doesn't celebrate the lost being found, you may be the lost one. The older brother thought he was found and he finds out at the end he was lost. We are still lost if we don't celebrate when the lost are found. Listen, we are still, that's a strong theological implication. You know what jumps in your head if you grew up in church? Oh, I can't lose my salvation. I said the prayer. I said the prayer of salvation. I have it in my book. I have the, I have the, the thing in my Bible where it says I got saved. So I, I made a profession to Jesus and so therefore I'm transformed. I'm saved in the moment. We are still lost. In some sense, if we don't celebrate when the lost are found, we're the Pharisees. We're the ones that think we're doing all the right stuff and we don't 
we don't sit at the table with the heart of God. You know what this means? It means that being evangelical is incredibly important. It means that wanting to share the gospel and wanting to be around a lost, a person that needs God, is important. It means that we cannot allow pictures of evangelicalism that don't represent this picture to ransom what it means to follow Jesus. We have to buy it back. We have to live it back. We have to bring it back. We have to be the ones that do the actual Christ following and have the heart of God. Otherwise, people are gonna take the word, twist it, manipulate it, fly a banner and say that they're followers of Jesus. The lost. When we see the kingdom clearly, we wanna help the lost brothers and be a part of the inner circle of their lives. You see the picture? You see, what, you see, you see, you see what's so freaking powerful about this? The Pharisees criticized Jesus for sitting at the table, for celebrating with his son who's returned. He's got the fattened calf and the wine and the crackers. I mean, he's just, woo. He's enjoying it. He came home. The picture of Jesus sitting with those lost people is a picture of Jesus reaching those lost people. That's what he's doing. He's reaching them by, by being with them, by celebrating them, by, by enjoying them, by being in their lives. And what Jesus does is he wants the Pharisees to leave the temple rigidity that just kind of exists for whatever's sake that lost the heart of God in the process of trying to you know, earn favor with God aside from any type of grace, he's going, come sit at the table with me. Come in here, sit with these sinners. Sit with, you're one of them, by the way. That's what the father does. He goes to the older brother and he goes, dude, just because you're here doesn't mean you got it all together. I've been with you. I love you. I celebrate you. We have the, you know, the not so fattened calf every other week. We're fine. Come in here and celebrate with your brother. Get to the table. This is where my heart is. Let's celebrate. You're in there. He's in there. Let's have a bigger party. The lost were sitting with Jesus because Jesus went out and found them. So a couple things. Just kind of start to, to dissect this into two different parts because we, we need to understand what this looks like as it lives in, in the world we live in. What's our disposition towards the lost? Uh, just quickly, every major faith, every major faith perspective has their own version of people being lost. So, the society that we live in today doesn't like the idea of there are people who are lost. You know, how can you tell me I'm lost? Some might say. I'm not lost. I'm doing me. You do you. I'll do me. I'm not lost. So just the, the mere implication of someone being lost can be in the society that we live in offensive. We have to understand that every major faith tradition has a version of people being lost. So that paradigm 
is not just a Christian idea. It's not just a Christian idea that people are lost. Every single one has it. Whether it's they've lost their way, they lost their perspective, they lost their character, they lost their salvation, or they lost their belief, we all see it. Don't you see it? You look at all the different ones, that person lost the way, that person's not doing what they're supposed to do. People are lost. In the Christian paradigm, people who haven't decided to spend their lives worshiping God first and foremost are by definition lost because we were created to reflect God into the world as we worship him, we reflect him into the world. So he becomes our highest adoration, he becomes our highest commitment, he drives us through the world because we're representatives of him. So when we, when we worship anything other than God, money, stuff, sex, idea, whatever it is, fame, whenever we worship those things, the Bible would say we're lost. Pride, we're lost. You're missing what God has for you. It's the whole real rich definition of sin. You're, you've missed the mark of what you were originally designed to do. You missed the mark, so you're lost. So we have to see ourselves, first and foremost, as a disposition towards the lost, is that every one of us was lost. And that the only reason you're not lost, this is important, is that someone found you. Big difference between just becoming a follower of Christ, thinking that you made your own decision, and the grace of God somehow finding you. The implication is you weren't looking. The implication is it really has nothing to do with you. You've been graced with God's provision. So, I was lost, and someone was looking for me. I didn't even know I was lost. They were looking for me. And now I'm found. I heard the message. I know Jesus. I followed him. And here I am. When living the gospel, our attitude should be, first, listen to this. Lucky me. Lucky me. Not to the lost, lucky you for me. Our disposition needs to be one of, lucky me. I once was lost and now I'm found. I can't believe it. I was sitting under a couch somewhere. I was off in the middle of a ditch somewhere and the shepherd came along and found me. I got found. I can't believe I got found. It's not, oh, I'm found and you need to be found. And lucky you that me, the found person, come to find you. You see, this is huge because this is where the attitude of arrogance comes in. Oh, I'm found and I'm so found that if you're lucky, you might be found too. No, 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 it's not you're lucky, it's I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I was found. So what happens is an explosive, exuberant joy that, you, that just, I'm found. I'm just found. I just imagine the sun sitting there, leaning back, going, kind of like Trey Sermon. <laughs> like, I don't know how this happened. I squandered it all. I sold the land. I lost all the money, and I'm eating the fat. I'm enjoying it all. Lucky me, says the little son. Your attitude has to be lucky me. That's the disposition. You're not gonna win a world over walking into it telling them that they are lost. You're gonna win the world over telling them that you are found and it living through you. 
That's the attitude. It's not our job to walk around and target. They're lost. I'm going to get them. 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 I'm going after them. I'm going after them. It's just, <laughs> I'm just walking through life and I am found. And guess what? If you are a found person, you're, you're, you are one of few. There's not a whole lot of found people. So guess what? If you live your life in a God-honoring way and you believe you're lucky because you're found, you are going to be around people who are lost. And that is going to transcend your friction around, I gotta say something, I gotta preach something, I gotta say something. Listen to this, the Father, this is, mm, the Father never preaches to the lost son. He never preaches, he never says to the son, he's saying, can I have all the money? He gives him money. You're dead to me. Okay. I'm going. I'm weeping. He comes back. Father, I, I gave it all away. I squandered it all. I destroyed it. I disgraced you. Let me have a spot in the back. Get the robe. Get the food. Get the party. Strike up the band. The Father never once preaches. He celebrates. He sits. You know, in a world of distraction, in a world where we are captivated by our phones, we're overwhelmed by what's going on in the news, we're overwhelmed with what's going on in our personal lives, we're feeling anxiety, we're on our phones, we all have way more to accomplish, we've lost our job, we have a, we have a, a loved one that's sick, we're all completely overwhelmed, we're dealing with the kids, we're dealing with you know, family, extended family, we're completely overwhelmed, our brain is fractured into a million little pieces. You know what is a superpower? In, in today's society, being present with people is a superpower. Like if you can actually sit down with people and just be with them. No phone, no fragmentation, eye to eye with listening ears. You are a superhero. You have superpowers. This is the picture of reaching the lost. Your ability to be present with people. Your ability to sit with people and make them feel like you love them. I struggle so much with this. The same way you do. Because we love our lives. We're captivated by us. You know what the key to being present with people is? Actually caring about people. And it's the epitome of reaching anyone and everyone. You see, if you start with this disposition that <laughs> I am lucky and I'm just gonna be with people and God's heart is with people, you might change the world. Just go there. Just be with people. Be present. Disposition towards the loss, motivation towards the loss. If our motivation to finding the loss is fear, then it's more about control than compassion. If our motivation to finding the lost 
is about fear, and it's more about control and compassion. What I'm talking about is how so many people try to manipulate people. They try to scare them. They try to make sure that the people that they're reaching or talking to see the bad things in their life and what the repercussions of them are and use that line of thinking to get them to change paths. That's about control. You see, you see this in parents, right? You know, Parents, of course, have to define the way and discipline the way, and that's a part of it, but that is certainly not what great parenting is. It doesn't just exist to define the margins. Parenting, leading, is about pointing to a beautiful, bright future. If your whole motivation behind reaching people is kind of coming from this place of, it's my duty to tell them something, Otherwise, they might fall off a cliff and be lost for eternity or they're whatever. That, that's about control. That's about you. That's about you wanting them and their lives and that you want their lives to change so it's a reflection of you or you wanting to make sure that you get the message across or that you get the cap, the feather in your cap for their change. So if it's about control, then it's not compassion. And the motivation to reaching the lost is supposed to be Compassion. Here's what control does. Control stands, it stands. It stands up. Literally, it stands. It doesn't sit. Control says, I'm here, I have a message, I'm standing. Control shouts. It doesn't speak. So you start to think of all the pictures of evangelism. If you're not familiar with what this looks like, standing, shouting, and what it does is it threatens. When you're motivated by control, you're motivated by fear, you stand, you shout, and you threaten. When you're motivated by compassion, you sit, you share, and you build connection with people. Jesus' evangelism strategy was to sit, to share, and to build The first step is your heart check. If moving towards people is not out of love and it, wouldn't, it, 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 and it wouldn't act regardless of response, then it's a bad motivation. I wanna end with this, this thought. Maybe you've lost someone. You physically lost someone. Maybe someone passed away in your family this year or, or recently. I want you to just, if that's not something you can, you know, call upon right this moment, I want you to just think for a second. Imagine. So, think of someone you love. You love so much. Maybe it's a child, a spouse, maybe it's a friend, a parent. I want you to think about them. I want you to think about them. And I want you to think about if you lost them right now. Maybe you've been down that road. They disappear, they die, they move away. Imagine losing someone you love. And let what that would do, do what it's supposed to do to your heart. What does that do to your heart? You start first where God starts. 
with love. I love them. The second thing, I lost them. What does losing someone you love do to you? It breaks your heart. It wrecks you. It destroys you. You lose someone you love. If you could get them back, how would you talk to them? How would you talk to them if you could get them back? Would you yell at them? Would you shout at them? How would you feel if you got them back? Would you think lucky them or lucky me? The heart of evangelism, the heart of the gospel is compassion for people who need reached and loved and cared for and found. The gospel is not just a message, it's a person, the person of Jesus, moving into our lives so that we become the people in someone else's. Let's take a minute, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much God, just, we're so blessed. Like, we, we were found by you. We're so grateful that you, you, you sit with us, you, you hear us, you care. Father, please, 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 help us to have the right attitude. Help us to have the right disposition. Help us to have the right motivation. And God, use every one of us individually as we sit in the circles that we're gonna go sit in to be and represent the heart of God in those places. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, next, uh, the next two weeks, um, John McCambridge is gonna be teaching. And so you are, you're gonna be in for some great teaching and I don't want you to miss it. So come back then and we'll see you then. We love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today.